previously on American Thought Leaders. I was anti-democracy, I was a Islamist revolutionary that wanted to establish a caliphate and I was imprisoned in Egypt and sentenced to five years because I was attempting to overthrow the Egyptian government. In part two of my interview with Majid Nawaz, now a leading anti-extremism activist, we dive deeper into the ideological war he sees gripping the Western world and how bad actors are using propaganda and obfuscation to radicalize society. How do you oppose tyranny? How do you hold the government to account if you don't know where the truth is? That's the purpose of it, so that we're all confused and in disarray and we don't know where the truth lies anymore. And why communist regimes feel so threatened by spirituality. If you don't have that um, spiritual grounding, then there's a void and that void is filled by the state and your morality then gets defined by the state. This is American Thought Leaders and I'm Yanya Kalik. So what do you think happened in Canada? I mean, this Emergency Powers Act was invoked. Um, you know, for all intents and purposes, some people even expected it might be a while while it's in place. It was, I think, authorized for a month by a par Canadian Parliament, in fact. And then, you know, within a day or two, Something boom, treated, right? it was gone. Yeah. And, you know, just like a couple of thoughts, this, this truckers movement, right, which was actually a lot more than just truckers. Yeah. It started with truckers basically being against cross-border mandates. I mean, shortly after that, or at least, you know, strong correlation, maybe not causation here, but, you know, a number of provinces, and it goes Saskatchewan and Alberta, very quickly decided we're dropping mandates. UK, you know, shortly thereafter, everything open, right? Or, or at least England, yeah, right? England, yeah. Um, you know, and frankly, and also in a number of states, and frankly, the, there's a whole truckers movement began in the US, and similarly, a lot of shifts happening as we speak uh, there. Yeah. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm seeing kind of this whole picture. My thesis is that the truckers actually did have Heroes. a profound impact. Heroes. Right? Yeah. Of course, you know, suffered for it, at least the Canadians, yeah. the Canadian and people still in Ottawa. Yeah. So what, 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 do, you, and well, what I, do you think happened? I think, I think Trudeau uh, and I think the, his various allies in government and his party and in, in, in power, I think they overplayed their hand. And they underestimated the power of these truckers and the people's power. They underestimated the global resonance that would have and the mood, the appetite around the world for that and the focus on it. And uh, that's why I believe that soon after, as you alluded to, soon after extending the emergency law, there was this sudden collapse and he just retreated from it and cancelled the whole thing. Um, it was unsustainable for him. Though, that doesn't mean the struggle's over. Um, the introduction of the central banking digital currencies will continue. They will keep, keep pushing for that. And I think the only option we have, paper money, is on the way out because we don't control that part of it, right? So that's where I think you'd agree paper money will come go. go. I don't know when, but eventually and maybe soon it will go. The only question becomes, <clears throat> will there be anything that competes with central banking digital currencies in the form of crypto? Or will we all be bound to the central banking voucher system, and if we are, how do we protect our privacy and our rights within that system? That will become the next conversation. Well, it's, it's, so it's interesting that you mentioned that, because not too uh, long ago, I had on the, Eric Bethel on the show. Eric was uh, the US stakeholder uh, for the World Bank, and now he's, you know, he's developed, uh, he believes that, as you do, that some sort of digital currency is what it's gonna be in the future. There's no way around that, and that these central bank digital currencies are gonna be a thing. So he's come up with a set of principles. He calls them the Mercator principles. Uh, he's trying to get, and he showed them to a number of very high-profile people. A lot of people don't necessarily want to sign up yeah. to these principles. They're, of course, which talk about privacy and so forth. But it, the, I guess the question I always have is, you know, it seems like 
every, every one of these systems that we try to devise, there's always the people who have this authoritarian impulse, who have this desire, are always kind of find a way. I mean, the US system, and this is, I've spent the last three years discovering this, was structured very specifically to be inefficient, to, to, to create all sorts of problems for people who have that impulse, yeah. right? And have the system correct itself and you know, allow for the people you know, to, con to, to continue to have a voice, right? You're very lucky. Um, <laughs> very but lucky. but it, yeah. I mean, everything's being thrown at it for, you know, quite, especially recently for quite some time. It's, it's, it's just fascinating to so watch. You've got people these yeah. days questioning democratic and open society. I mean, intellectuals, right? Wondering whether it's time that we copied the China model and became a bit more authoritarian. There's a lot of people yeah. quite... Yeah, they have no idea. I mean, look, you have some personal experience with your family history in Eastern Europe and with totalitarianism. I have direct... They have no idea how lucky they are to have this system. And I promise you, even in England, so the United Kingdom, a lot of Americans are surprised when they hear this. We still have elements of medievalism in our system as we do in our architecture, which is a beautiful thing, but in our political system, right? So our second chamber, the equivalent of your Senate, till this day is unelected. Unelected. Now, <clears throat> under Tony Blair, there was a problem here. He realized he's meant to be a progressive PM. So he said, okay, you know what? We'll reduce their power a bit. They're still unelected, but he said they can only delay legislation for a year, which is what the current situation is. Of course, the problem then is, that means that the lower chamber, what we call the House of Commons, has this power because you've got an unelected second chamber, so they don't have the ma democratic mandate to oppose the elected lower chamber, which is the House of Commons. They can only delay legislation, therefore, for a year. And people supported that because they said, you guys aren't even elected in the first place, so why should you have the right to delay anything? But that means that if you've got the majority in the lower chamber, as Boris Johnson currently does, with an 80-seat majority, think of the size of that majority, you can get anything through you want, which is how all of this COVID abuse came through the mandates, right? Now, while we've been here um, <clears throat> uh, in the UK, they've passed other bills, the policing bill now, that was rejected by the laws, but again, they could only block it for a year, has passed again in the Commons. This bill uh, seeks to prohibit protest if it's too noisy. Yeah, which is the point of a protest is to make some well, noise. Well, this, this was right? the issue, you know, the, the truckers, too much honking. Yeah. Frankly, there was too much honking. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It, but this is how you protest. ban it, right? Yeah. So, so the, it's now a, a law brought in. So the problem we've got is we don't have a check on our lower chamber, right? We, 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 and the upper chamber, as I say, is unelected. And, of course, how you get appointed to this upper chamber, the Times in the UK ran a piece that apparently, and this is a proper article in a proper newspaper, so it's not... I mean, I'll say it because it's, it's open in the press. Three million pounds were donated to the Conservative Party by uh, roughly 16 donors, all of whom then became chair, chairman of the party. And then after they gave, that's after 2.5 million, when they gave the final half a million, they were awarded with peerages, which means they're appointed to the House of Lords. It's all corrupt, right? Because if it's by appointment and not by election, then think about how you get that appointment, right? Whose palm do you have to grease? So we've, this is why I say, and that's not even in a tyranny, right? It's not even in a totalitarian state. I'm talking about the mother of parliaments in England, yeah? So Americans are very lucky. This inefficient system with this separation of powers allowed for Florida, Tennessee, and Texas to do what they wanted, while California and New York did what they wanted. That's democracy. I don't agree with what California and New York did. What I do agree with is states having that right to choose their course and then let the evidence indicate what the right way was, you know? And uh, the constitution, the written constitution, which we don't have in England, yeah? 
guarantees your right to say free speech and all of the other rights that you have in that constitution, which makes it incredibly hard for a president, even if they had the intention, to, uh, to violate some of those basic civil liberties that are guaranteed for you in that written constitution on a federal level. It's hard, even though, you know, not, maybe not impossible, but very, 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 very difficult to do. Whereas in the UK, we have none of those um, protections. So I think that those young, um, usually in it's Silicon Valley types that question democracy, you know, and, they, and at the same time, while they're openly questioning democracy and openly uh, advocating for a more efficient, technocratic Chinese model, uh, the, un- the funny thing is, they don't see the irony that they talk a lot about privilege when it comes to, say, workplace white privilege. They, you know, they talk a lot about that. They don't realize how privileged they are to even have this ability to question democracy in that way and advocate for an idea such as technocratic tyranny implemented in China. I mean, these are, honestly, this is like the epitome of if they knew what happens in those kinds of systems. Um, the, the privilege to believe that if you give that much power to one man, that only good will happen is the kind of naivety that somebody who's never seen the dark side of life would advocate. And they think they've seen the dark side of life because they've had some, I don't know, they had a fender bender in their car and somebody's come out and threatened to hit them because they were driving wrong. And that's, ooh, a difficult life, you know, unbelievable. It's frankly hard to understand. And this is, you know, you're right, right? My, my family came from communist Poland, you know, effectively had to escape at a certain time. And Poland, frankly, was pretty light communism, if you can say that, compared to China or the Soviet Union in a lot of ways. I knew what happened to my family members, you know, both on the Soviet side and on the Nazi German side. I I was aware of these stories. I was growing up in a free society, and it was only after I really started working with people who had suffered at the hands of the Chinese regime that it all clicked. I got, oh, okay, I understand. But I, you know, you don't, you, it's just very hard to imagine. I mean, I think we must live in the freest society in history, yeah. probably, yeah. right? And it's just kind of hard to imagine what it would be like to live in a society where you're always looking over your shoulder. Well, frankly, a lot of us are starting to, I think a lot of people are starting to realize what That's it's right. like. Yeah. But, and uh, I think it's no coincidence that the freest society in history also happens to be one of the most um, successful by material metrics, at least. But I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that the, the freedom granted to explore spirituality, religious communities, I think that's crucial in an open democratic society and it's why it remains protected. And if you think about it, why is that so important? Mm. In a communist society, materialism is a doctrine, going back to the idea of there's no such thing as truth and it's all relative and that you and your values and your morals are all a product of society and circumstance, and therefore, if I can define that circumstance, I can define morality. That is materialism, yeah? And communism is built on the materialist doctrine. Now, that's why a totalitarian state despises any community, in particular communities, but also individuals, that believe that a moral hierarchy can exist outside of the state. A totalitarian state wants to be the beginning and the end of morality. If you have a moral hierarchy that is independent of that state, it means you have your own moral compass. And it means that there will be some red lines for you because you have a, let's put it in a religious context, it doesn't have to be formal religion, it could be spirituality, it could be Buddhism, it doesn't have to be like a strict fundamentalist thing, right? Let's just call it a a spiritual belief, right? Now, if you have a sovereign relationship with your higher power, your, your, your spiritual relationship. That's a sovereign relationship in religious terms with God, right? 
That means that there are elements of your morality and view on life that are outside of the state's control, which means they can't shape those elements in terms of morality. That means they can't shape your reality. You have an independent source for how you view the world. That's why totalitarian states like China hate religious communities so much. You know, Uyghur genocide, it threatens them. Tibetans, Christians in China, it threatens them. It's why communism in the phrase that religion is the opium of the masses, they've declared war on having this moral hierarchy with all of its flaws, by the way. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a good, you know, there's flaws there too. But in principle, they, don't, they feel threatened by that idea that you could exist outside of the state with your own morality. Because, that, because they believe that actually only the materialist doctrine defines morality and that's the state that gets to choose uh, what that reality should be. And so in that context, back to America, where you've got this open democratic society with the separation of powers and the written constitution, it's no coincidence for me that during the COVID mandates where we, for the first time in history, we began seeing that abuse of our civil liberties in that orchestrated and global way, um, that a lot of the religious communities were among the first and foremost to oppose those mandates because they immediately saw the dangers of the state dictating in those areas where they already had a sovereign relationship with their spiritual uh, or God or their spiritual uh, uh, being. And whether that's the pastor that was repeatedly arrested in Canada, whether it was the, um, uh, the uh, Muslim communities in the mosques in the UK who were uh, uh, least compliant when you looked at the surveys when it came to, among the lower end of the compliance to COVID mandates was on the Muslim side. The trust was stronger with their imams and their priests and their, and their sense of a moral hierarchy that didn't need the state to validate it. Those that didn't have that, a void and a vacuum is filled by the state, and the state steps in where religion used to be. And it's why if you think about the opposition to the USSR in history, if you think about the role religion played in that, yeah, in particular the church, you start seeing some of this, right? And that's why I think that when, when you see in open and, democrat, open and democratic societies with all their imperfections, it's why religious pluralism is a strength. It's for this reason, right? It's why <clears throat> religious diversity is a strength, because if you, the more diversity you have in doctrine and spirituality and culture, the harder it is for the state to monopolize. And the harder it is for the state to monopolize, the harder it is for the state to become authoritarian. And that's the unique thing that you have in the United States of America because of the separation of powers. They can't get a grip on that diversity, and it's a strength. Fascinating. You know, I've been thinking about People have called it uh, public-private partnership, kind of you know collaboration of the state or you know agencies uh, that you know health agencies, and then also you know big tech and pharmaceuticals and pharma and, and big pharma yeah. to to push you know particular narratives which you mentioned you know ultimately didn't make a lot of sense or certainly weren't based on actual science. They're based on the science, yeah. which is. Yeah something different entirely. How does this fit into your picture here that you're, that you're drawing? Yeah. So back to the idea that the state <clears throat> would seek to um, define your, your morality, it requires an array of tools to do that. When you look at fascism, as opposed to uh, communism, the distinction, so, so the communists would want to seize the means of production and have the state own all of them. Fascism, is that partnership you spoke of. It's the 
So a better word for fascism is actually corporatism. It's the merger of state and corporate power. But rather than the state seizing the means of production, it begins a partnership with corporates for the purposes of profit. And that's what we began witnessing happening under the COVID period. Uh, huge, powerful, some of the wealthiest companies on the planet, big tech companies, big pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer, right? If you were to look up who paid the largest criminal fine in history, the results that pop up is Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline, two big pharmaceuticals. The assumption that these companies, and Violation Tracker, you can go to as a website, it lists all of the fines, like fraud and all of this stuff that they've had to pay, huge fines, huge, largest you know, fines that you find. The assumption that these companies exist for your benefit is one that really must be interrogated. They exist for profit and you are the product. They are, you are the thing that needs to be exploited for the purposes of profit. So when the state began a partnership with these corporates, I took the view that during the COVID mandate period in particular, our states, whether it's here in the US, in the United Kingdom, <clears throat> were no longer serving their people, but rather they were serving vested interests for the purposes of maximizing profit. That's fascism. That's what Mussolini did. Um, and it's how you utilize industry for the purposes of maximizing profit to deliver a certain goal. And, and in that process, people are simply cogs in the wheel. The individual no longer matters. And it's incredibly, uh, incredibly dangerous. Um, and again, if you don't have that mm, spiritual grounding, then there's a void and that void is filled by the state. And your morality then gets defined by the state. And you have no mm, psychological ability to oppose the purpose the state is saying you exist for, which is as a commodity to maximize profit. Because there's nothing outside of that purpose that the state has set for you that you aspire to. It's why it's so important to have that higher aspiration that exists outside of the context of the state. But in, in, in a short answer to your question, that is fascism. And it's what I believe we, came, we, we became perilously close to, unfortunately. So what's really interesting to me, and I, I'm gonna use this, the, this war, Russia-Ukraine war as an example, okay? So, you know, being from the region, I'm a, I'm a Pole, right? And I'm acute, I've been acutely aware. It's almost like we're, we're intrinsically aware of the threat of Russia and frankly, Germany on the other side, having been, you know, rolled over however many times. All the countries on the periphery of Russia that are free countries are, you know, feel that there's a certain threat that 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 has always exists there because the, Russia may have these imperial ambitions and certainly has repeatedly whether it's on the Soviet Union or previously and so you know I'm incredibly you know supportive in this in this situation to the Ukrainians all this is happening in a context where I'm seeing I guess the same actors the same corporate media the same uh, Twitter accounts, probably because I spend way too much time there, that were, you know, early on, for example, promoting um, Black Lives Matter, which Go before we that. Go before later. War on Terror first. Invasion of Iraq. Okay, interesting. Same crowd, then Black Lives Matter, then COVID mandates. Same crowd, then it I, I mean, war. all sorts of things. And there's this kind of, you know, perceived almost unanimity 
there's this correct narrative that you must adhere to. And frankly, you know, the thing, I'm going to comment a little further here because I found myself with my judgment clouded because I'm seeing these same actors that are, you know, basically pushing, you know, with ostensible unanimity, this, this yeah. particular position. And I've been thinking about what is, what is the cost of media and, you know, kind of trusted organization, information organizations, you know, switching from pursuit of truth, which is, you know, I, I think what journalism is supposed to be, to narrative reinforcement, narrative creation, narrative reinforcement. And it just, I think it, it hurts all of us in profound ways. And, I, and I, I, I'm, this is what I've been reflecting on. Well, you, you have just summarized the, 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 the this is a, you are the case study of the quote that you opened this interview up with. If you can no longer define reality because you don't know who to trust, so you don't know where to stand on any given topic, how do you oppose tyranny? How do you hold the government to account if you don't know where the truth is? That's the purpose of it, so that we're all confused and in disarray, and we don't know where the truth lies anymore. And if you look to the genius of George Orwell in 1984, he perfectly demonstrates why that serves tyranny. You know, and, and, and the examples he uses in 1984 where the news can be changed from day to day. You know, yesterday's headline and the opposite in today's headline and everyone just has to believe it. So you have no basis, no grounding that under your feet, it's just mud. You can't stand firm. So there's no basis to hold the government to account on anything they've said or done because anything they've said or done yesterday, they're saying or doing the opposite today. So you, how do you say, you lied. Well, I didn't say this, I'm saying this now. But you said that yesterday. No, I didn't. Look. And it's just changed. So this Ukraine situation is a classic case in point. Look, from a Muslim background, whether it's the genocide in Bosnia perpetrated, you know, the, the arms embargo, the Russians armed the Serbs, yeah? And the Mos Bosnian Muslims weren't able to arm themselves. <clears throat> Before that, Afghanistan. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. My family's from Pakistan. It messed up the whole region and the war on terror and the rest is history, right? I've got emotional reasons to hate Russia. A bit like people from a heritage, Polish heritage. I've got emotional reasons to hate Russia with a passion. My life trajectory was impacted by the Bosnia genocide. The Russians were arming the Serbs. So I've got every visceral emotion, re emotional reason to hate that. But the, the interesting thing is that the, the current media narrative is counting on that. Now, if I need to be able to understand what's going on, the, the first thing we have to keep in mind is that foreign policy is never two-dimensional. It's never two-dimensional, and we should learn that from the mistakes in Iraq. It's wrong for Putin to invade Ukraine. We also know that Ukraine has this gas pipeline that feeds Germany, right? So something is a bit, a bit more complicated. We also know that there was a uprising in Ukraine in 2014 and that the government that was previously pro-Russian in that Maidan uprising then switched and became pro-American. And then because the previous pre-2014 government had disassociated formally from the EU and leaned towards Russia, this new government, post-2014, wanted to join NATO. So we start looking at this from an analysis perspective rather than from an emotional perspective, and we can still maintain our principles and say it's wrong to invade a country. Just as it was wrong for Iraq, it's wrong for, for Putin to invade Ukraine. But if I'm playing in, in, in a game of chess against you, even though I'm saying it's wrong to invade Ukraine, I'm playing a game of chess, I, I need to understand what your strategy is to beat you. So if in that context of a game of chess, if you're writing notes about what you're planning your next move and your strategy, uh, what's happened today is the equivalent of me seeing those notes and then saying, you know what, I don't need to see that. 
and I'm just going to pretend I, I don't, I'm not interested in how you're planning to play me and I think I can still win. Whereas actually I could look at that and realize how you're playing and beat you. Now, we've banned Russia today. We've ba we're going after Russian citizens who had nothing to do with any of this in the first place. We're, we're reacting in a way that's reinforcing this control over the narrative and banning any opposition voices. I'd rather know what the opponent is doing so I can beat them in that game of chess. So here's, here's the thing, right? In war, in, I mean, information war is actually an incredibly important part of war, yeah, right? That's right. There's always each side wants to have effective propaganda. Yeah. When I see, uh, you know, the, the pro-Ukraine narratives, clearly war propaganda, right? I, you know, I, I, I even understand that, right? And I understand why you might want to censor the, op the opposing side, in this case, the aggressor's war propaganda. At the same time, I fear that exactly the same system, which, which frankly has been used, right, will be used further domestically for you know political purposes. Yeah. So this is this yeah. is this and is this is the used. challenge, right? Like yeah. you. So you know, I I'm asking myself, am I a, am I really a free speech absolutist? I thought so, but in wartime. So it is being used. Not yeah. that it will be or has been. Yeah. It actively is right now because not only do we know that we're being told not to look at the Russian narrative here, yeah? We're also, we know that we're being fed a propaganda narrative on the Ukrainian side. We now know that because it's been exposed. What used to work, this idea that in war, you know, the first casualty is truth and you have to have propaganda to win, that, that is only relevant, if you think about it, in a centralized media world. So the problem now is what you've got is you've got people running the show who still think they're in that world. And the truth is, look how quickly it became exposed that Zelensky wasn't on the front lines wearing camouflage and that they were photos from a year ago. Yeah. Right? It took a couple of days. And so... And the ghost of Kiev and everything All of that else. was wrong. It was right. false, right? And right. our problem is, what does that do? Yeah? So you've got people running the show who still think they're in the Iraq war days where they can actually get away with this. And it took seven, eight, nine years for it to come out. But it took two days this time. And so what that demonstrates is they, that the old rules can no longer apply because now we're in this decentralized narrative or they haven't adjusted. They're still playing by the old rules. And what they're really actually in effect then doing, thinking they're doing good. Look, I'm never about intention. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I don't want to say they're evil people, right? It's, they think they're doing good, but we know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So they think they're doing good, but the, the, the net result is that people have stopped trusting in the system, they've stopped trusting in the media. Trust is at the lowest it's ever been. And what happens when you no longer trust democracy? Right? This is the problem. People end up, when you don't trust the system, that's when people like I was when I was 16 come in and recruit you to an extremist organization for authoritarianism. So that's the damage they're doing by undermining trust. And they don't realize it because maybe they're still stuck in that old world, in the centralized narrative world, where they think they still have control. They don't have control. And, and the solution to that is they need to let go of power. They need to let a generation that is digitally native, that has been raised with this idea that narratives are decentralized, that is able to and comfortable with looking at multiple perspectives, that is able to have two thoughts in its head at the same time and yet still get through it and do good. They need to relinquish power and let that generation step forward. And this is part of the problem. Call it the boomer problem, whatever word you, you know, uh, some friends of mine like Eric, Brett's brother, Eric Weinstein, he's, he says the boomers need to step aside. Whatever word you want to use, there's a group in power who are in their 70s and 80s. Think about who's running this um, uh, show at the moment, right? So they're Pelosi's age, they're Biden's age, right? They are Soros's age. And that's people, I think I'm old, right? Because I remember a time before there were mobile phones. 
I remember a time when if I want to meet you tomorrow, we'd have to agree right now where to meet, the location, and if you don't turn up, I wait 15 minutes, then I go to the next place and you have to guess where I've gone. And if you find me, you're lucky. If you don't, well, you got stuck. Right? I, I was 15 when I got my first mobile phone. So my primary socialization was in an age where there was no YouTube, no Twitter, no Facebook, no mobile phones. I think I'm old and I'm 44. These guys, the Pelosi's, the Biden's, the Soros's, they're in their 70s and 80s. So they've come from a world that, and, and it's difficult, Klaus Schwab, it's difficult for them to come to terms with the fact that's not the world anymore and that you can't just put out these stupid stories of ghosts of Kiev and think people aren't gonna realize. And of course, what does that do? It undermines everything. And the most important thing, it undermines trust in the system. Fair enough, fair enough. At the same time, one of the things that I've realized uh, over the last however many years is that there seems to be some portion of our population, and I don't think it's a small portion, that's ready to believe whatever the megaphone says. I, I find this to be a profoundly disturbing realization. Yeah. And again, and I'm not judging the people that are doing the listening and the fall to the megaphone, for lack, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, there's these nudge units. I think I don't know if that term is from the UK, but yep. there's there's people that are running in government in these agencies that are running, you know, effectively psychological operations to push people in certain directions. This has been exposed. You know, Laura Dodsworth is going to be on the show soon. Um, you know, people in the UK that were part of this looked at what they'd done and thought, hmm, I think we maybe went a little bit too far on the yeah. fear, fear yeah. thing here. Yeah. My point is that I think that I'm not sure it's as simple as people clinging to old ways of viewing things. I think there's also people who have realized that using PSYOP tools, they can profoundly influence a significant portion of the population and maybe that's enough. That is an old way of doing things because that's wartime propaganda that Hitler used. So propaganda, psychological abuse through messaging is what totalitarian governments have always done. And when you question that common narrative, you're gaslit. You're the one that has a mental health problem. That's what, that's what totalitarian regimes do. And so it's, a, it's a, an old way of doing things but adjusted to modern technology. So what the it's the, you're correct, it's in the UK, it's Spy B. It's a government unit that's colloquially called the, the nudge unit, but it's a pandemic scientific pandemic influenza behavioral is the B part unit. And then there was a Spy M, the modeling unit. Now we know about modeling and how bad that was, but Laura Dodsworth has done fantastic work on this. As was done under Nazism, and I don't mince my words on this, during the COVID mandate period, <clears throat> the government abused psychology to manipulate people through messaging. And that was the point of fear. And it is uh, against all ethics of psychology. And we established that because we studied World War II. We knew this was wrong, but it was being done. And now the people, by the way, <clears throat> who were involved have written columns. Like one of them, who was one of the key figures, a founder of the team. If you go to Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, it's a web platform, news platform, commentary platform in the UK. He's written a column saying we went too far, this was wrong. And that's because they got caught, but that's a different story. But um, it is correct that the majority of people are not leaders in this regard. Now, your realization about all that really means, and you're correct, again, thank you for saying it. it's not like you're not looking down on people. All it really means is you have some leadership traits. So we know that with human nature. Some people have leadership traits and others 
perhaps aren't interested in that, right? The other key thing is that most people um, don't have the privilege or luxury to study these events and formulate their opinions because they're on minimum wage. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they're trying to put food on the table, and so they don't have that privilege to study, and so they outsource their thinking to trusted voices. But that's why it becomes so important to control those trusted voices, and that's what happened during the COVID mandate phase. Media voices that people outsourced their thinking to and trusted were misleading them because they themselves had become co-opted by the nudge unit and this psycho psychological abuse of the population. Now, what's the solution to that? You know, have you ever seen these phrases on t-shirts that say, choose love? Like, it's really profound, and it's not what people think it is, even though it looks quite corny and haha, yeah, of course, choose love, I love my wife, I love my kids. <clears throat> In this context of conversation, it actually has a profound meaning. If you have the ability to look, uh, to rise above narratives and to, and to look at them from above and realize and see them from a blue sky perspective, that's the leadership traits I'm talking about. If you have that ability, you also then have a choice. That you now know that people will follow because you see what they don't see from a blue bird's eye perspective, blue sky perspective. So you, you have therefore a position of power. You can either manipulate them and do good or you can do bad. So you, that's, that's where now, think of that phrase, choose love. And, and Laura's great on this, right? If you're in that position and you can see how easy it is to mislead the masses who don't have the luxury, not the IQ, they don't have the luxury because of Maslow's hierarchy of needs to pursue the truth that you've had the privilege of arriving at, then in that position, we can either do good, choose love actively and choose not to harm people, or we can pursue the objectives of the state by manipulating their psychology to deliver profit. That's the choose part in choose love. So, and that's why you have to have a moral hierarchy outside of the state to have the strength or the moral courage or the internal moral compass to navigate through that because that level of power where you know you can push people in a direction with all the tools of the state, it's very tempting. You know, to go back to pop analogies, it's why in Star Wars, you know, they talk about the dark side, you know, and you can't play with it because that's what the dark side is. You know, and that, that is, is a beautiful commentary, even though it's pop, right? popular fiction, it's, it's beautiful commentary because the whole idea of the Jedi is that they can manipulate you through their words, right? So if you remember the scene with Obi-Wan, kind of, you don't want to do that, you know? They can manipulate you through their words and they're, they're warning of the dark side because they know that there's a way to do that and do evil. And that's what I mean by choose love in that context where you actively have to make a moral choice not to harm people even though you have the power to. And that's the process I had to go through when I left Isba Tahrir, right? And unfortunately, governments aren't good at, at making that choice in the, in the right way because, of course, they don't have that kind of, they're not that sovereign relationship with their spiritual higher powers, a very personal, intimate, moral relationship. Government doesn't have that. Government is this machine, and it's there to deliver objectives. So it's so easy for government, in fact, it's impossible, I'd say, for government to do anything other than that because it's an objective-oriented, uh, efficient, seeking organization. It will seek to deliver its aims. So it will seek to do that by any means necessary that are legal or ostensibly legal. So it's why you end up with the realization that actually big government may not be a good idea. That's why we end up with that realization. You realize actually it can harm people because that machine only ever grows. That monster, the more you feed it, the bigger it gets. And you see these institutions that end up with, you know, this kind of, um, uh, you know, we know that with uh, Darkness at Noon, Catch-22, Joseph Heller, you know, uh, Arthur Kostler, Darkness at Noon, uh, you know, uh, we know the stories, uh, Gulag Archipelago, 
you know, the whole idea of these books is to tell us what happens when the beast gets too big and how you get lost in that uh, Leviathan, you know. So it's why I've come to the conclusion that big governments are not a good idea and that what we really need is to restrict and contain that power and we need community, leaders in community with strong moral compasses um, and individuals that have their relationship with their higher moral hierarchy who can guide people to good as opposed to relying on on government. I notice on the way in here that quote from JFK, and again I see it in this context, ask not what you, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country is this point here. That actually forget what the government can do for you. What can you do for your country? You know, how can you in a community, as an individual, as communities, do good and make things better, better for people? In that context, choose love isn't some corny phrase on a t-shirt, it's a political philosophy in, in that context. You know. There's, there's this other thing that I've been thinking. I want to go, still go back to this idea of this, uh, you know, I guess, ever-present narrative, pushing the big narrative, a narrative reinforcement. I've been wondering how much, like, folks that are involved in this, even, you know, ostensibly for good reasons, right? We, we, we've heard about activist journalism, right? Yeah. That where it's, again, we've left truth-seeking. Now we know that there's certain narratives that must be maintained because they're good, yeah. they're right, and, and, that, and that's the mandate that journalists have. You, you kind of, and very often you might choose something that isn't quite true or maybe isn't true at all, but, but it fits the narrative. You had, can you get caught up in sort of a vicious cycle and doesn't this like affect, you know, everybody's thinking. I've, this, is, this is again what I've been thinking to myself recently because I found myself affected by this kind of thinking, being, a, a, I think, a particularly skeptical person, yeah, yeah. right? Whereas, you know, people that are inside of this system, or I don't know if you call it an echo chamber exactly, even if it starts out as being something that's um, someone out there knows is maybe supposed to be a noble lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. It starts always with a noble lie, right? Yeah. And then it ends up with evil. But it's amazing that people are... Uh, to be expected, really, but people are unable to see they're caught in a matrix. And the funny thing is they fetishize rebellion and they fetishize individual thinking and being a rebel. They fetishize it. So the same people will be listening to Roger Waters' Pink Floyd, Brick in the Wall. Yeah? We don't need no education. And the very same people will be listening to that song while working in a government machine, you know, trying to push this critical race theory through the system. You know? and, and meanwhile, they're... They're listening to that music. So they're not living the message that they're revering, they're fetishizing it, which tells me something, that they have this fantasy that they wish they could be that. They know they're not it. And at the same time, when they see somebody that is questioning, that insecurity kicks in. And that's when they start, you know, basically hating that person. They really, because that insecurity kicks. They know they're not rebels. They know they're not thinking for themselves, that they are doing, they're taking the easy path. I'm talking about the people in, in the government machine, you know. Uh, they know it's their job, and that causes this kind of internal conflict. Um, and so it's really unfortunate that you, we, you point these things out and, uh, and, and you're met with ridicule, and you're met with mockery. And, uh, and, and that's what totalitarianism does, you know. If you think about people that question communist regimes, and, and it happened under Nazism, it happened under the USSR, it happens in China now. The, the person questioning is the one that's considered that has the mental health problem that needs to be the Uyghurs are put in re-education camps because they're Muslims. So it's the, they're the ones with the problem, rather than celebrating that diversity and actually accepting the fact that people think differently, which is a strength, as I try to 
tried to, uh, you know, go into earlier. So, I, you know, how do you break through that when you're stuck in it? You need shocks. Um, and we, we, part of our messaging, we trained in that. You know, you need, the shocks are what wake people. So this COVID thing, that's a big shock. And it's woken a lot of people up that were previously perhaps in slumber. Um, and a lot more certainly than pre-COVID, you know. And, uh, and we see now there's a, there's a broader audience for this kind of conversation uh, that didn't used to exist. And that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm optimistic. And I, though I think we're in for some really hard, hard times, like the 30 years war, I think eventually we'll come through the other end and hopefully we'll be in a better position and, um, you know, the human community would have learned from it. Well, you know, one of the things that keeps striking me is this, you know, this idea that there would be a technocratic elite that governs everything and that that'll work. It's like, you know, I don't think you could have better evidence of the uh, failure of such a model than, you know, what basically what's happened over That's the right. last few years. It's yeah. kind of, it's almost unbelievable how many times, at least for those that are choose to look, have seen it fail. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so when I say to you now that big government might not be a good idea, you see it's falling on receptive ears, right? Because suddenly you're like, oh yeah, I just saw what big government tried to do to us. Mm -hmm. That's the shocks. Those shocks, um, they wake people up. And you know, I think that's part of when we say our privileged societies, that's what we mean. You have to have these shocks so that people realize they are fragile, that they are vulnerable, and when you feel vulnerable, you start thinking. That's human nature. They say that freedom isn't free. Yeah. Right? You know, that's the part I think we've forgotten. Yeah. Right? Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's that vulnerability we need to feel sometimes to begin questioning our, our, our assumptions so we can begin uh, uh, solving our way, uh, way out of them. So I can't help but think that you spent the better part of the last 10 years uh, working in a anti-radicalization organization, you created it uh, for this purpose. But now you've closed up shop and you've moved on to something else. And what, what is that and why? And, and is this part of everything we've been talking about right now? It is, it's intimately connected. So during the COVID period, I shut Quilliam down. Mainly that it was difficult, as you can imagine, to, through lockdown to raise funding for a nonprofit. We were a 501c3 and everything. The other thing though, is that I began seeing that what was the, the last decade's main big topic of the global war on terror, the weaponization of those ideas to serve political purposes, as I discussed. I wanted no part in that. And I, I realized that actually a lot of not just the experience in that decade, but the decade before when I was with Hizbut Tahrir could be used in a way to address some of these broader topics. Because actually the topics did broaden out themselves. COVID mandates affected the world and it was a conversation around authoritarianism versus liberty, which we were having on a micro level inside Muslim communities in the context of Islamist autocracy or theocracy versus liberty. So it was the, the same drive, but on a global scale to have that conversation. And, and so for me, it was a natural transition, even though people looking at it were thinking, how did this guy go from uh, an all counter extremism organization to being a broadcaster, to being a vocal critic? Um, with some success on, on the world stage, a vocal critic of COVID mandates, uh, sticking my head above the parapet. For me, it was a perfectly natural thing because what I saw in COVID mandates were exactly the, the, the mindset that I was opposing when it came to opposing Islamist theocracy, that authoritarian mindset. And that, by the way, the psychology behind it and the, and the levers behind it are identical. That's just human nature. What's different is the, is the words used in the narratives, but even the fact I'm identifying narratives 
You know, we'd done all of that before. So for me, it was very natural to, to see those patterns and to say, hang on a minute, something's not right here. Um, and also to know that actually it was consistent for me to say, just as I gave up a heck of a lot, family life, friendship circle, position, uh, sense of self, to abandon Islamist theocracy, I gave all of that up to defend something, open democratic societies, right? I saw that what I had given up to defend open democratic societies, and now that was under attack. I'm like, why did I give all of that up if this very thing you people don't even believe in in the first place? That wound me up, you know? So that's, okay, that's really interesting. So do you think, you know, you went from Islamism to embracing liberalism. Do you think that the seeds of this you know, you didn't believe it in the first place. That's what I just caught on, right? You, 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 you mentioned, you know, uh, I think in reference to liberalism and democracy, you know, you seem to be, you seem to not have believed some of these things in the first place. That's, that's the phrase that you said. So what I'm curious about is, do you think that this illiberal charge that we seem to be seeing right now, do you think that's inherent in liberalism or it's something that came from outside? So when I say you people didn't believe it in the first place, I mean, those in power that attempted to undermine it. Clearly, there's a bunch of people that do believe in those values, and that's the ones we rallied in the protests. But what I took personally is if I've given up everything for, for this value set that is now being betrayed by the people that were in leadership positions that were meant to be defending that value set, and I've given up a hell of a lot to, to join that value set, that winds me up. Like, you guys, I've sacrificed for this value set, and now you guys are the ones attacking it, not those guys that I used to criticize. So I've always, to put it in a, in a simple way, I've always wanted to be with the people that value those values. Yeah? And so whether it's the Islamist theocrats that were attacking them, or now in this case with the mandates, the state that was actually assaulting those values, for me I see a consistent transition to say, those values are what matter. And if you're attacking them from the Islamist side or from the state, I'm gonna defend those values. So it was a seamless transition for me to then jump into that COVID space. So liberalism, frankly, and secularism actually have gone hand in hand, yeah. right? Yeah. Small L liberalism. Yes, yeah. but, you're, but, but you're talking about, you know, the sort of the importance of this connection to God or spiritual yeah. element. I mean, the, yeah. I guess, what, again, what I'm trying to get at here is, do you see there being something in, inherently problematic that has created this? It's not just the leaders that are going against it. There's all sorts of people yeah. that, you know, whatever yes. narrative that you're picking, that are, yeah. that are going for. There's people vilifying unvaccinated people. There's people vilifying Russians yes. at the moment. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's unbelievable. In, in Italy, they almost, you know, banned Dostoevsky from a course or something yeah. like this. There is something. Right? There's this kind of, yeah. yeah. That element that's missing there, so why were people able to, why were people so tempted to follow the state even where it went against their own interests and their own value system? And that's the lack of spirituality. I think that if you take spiritual um, connection away from society, and we've seen how it's been eroding of late, you know, whether it's religious adherence, I'm not interested. What I really care about is that there's a moral hierarchy you believe in in some higher purpose, right? If you take that away from society, then you end up in a situation where there's a void and the state fills that void. And, and your moral hierarchy becomes the state. And so you're blindly following the moral compass the state sets for you. So there was, what I realized, and, and that was actually, let's call it a pivot even within myself, the importance of jealously guarding not only the value set, but the connection you have to that moral hierarchy. It's that latter part that I think there was a refocus in my mind. And I have a teacher on the... On the um, um, Sufi Islam side, Sheikh Ali uh, uh, and uh, myself and my, my friend uh, Osman 
who we did a lot of work on the uh, Muslim prisoner rehabilitation with convicted, high-level convicted terrorists. And part of the mentoring is that, is to get that connection, that, that spiritual connection in place so that you have that strong moral compass and grounding because you need a motivation to defend that value set. When that value set comes under attack, why still even then? What is it that's gonna drive you to get you through the hot and the cold winds that you face when you're doing that work? Because it's difficult. People turn on you, they call you all sorts of things, they, they cancel you, as happened to me. I mean, I, you know, my, for legal reasons, all I'm gonna say is, I had a show on the largest commercial radio group in the UK and my contract was ended. You know, I happen to also have been spending months criticizing COVID mandates. So what's going to get you through that? You have to have some connection that gives you that strength. And that's the, the element there, the spiritual grounding. I think we've missed in or we've underestimated in our open democratic societies. And, you know, it's why I said earlier, it's a strength and it needs to be preserved. It needs to be valued properly and protected. It needs to be encouraged. Uh, meditative practices, wellness a connection and an understanding of you inside and then your relationship with the world and a constant search inside for improvement and learning from your own mistakes and others' mistakes to better because you aspire to something better, you know? And that connection, I think, uh, it's, it's, it's so dangerous for that to be undermined. It's so dangerous for that, let's call it anti-theism as opposed to, I don't care what people believe. So I say, the idea that you mustn't believe that is what I have a problem with. Anti-theism, yeah? Um, because then all you're left with is materialism. And when you're, when you're only left with materialism, it's inevitable you'll end up at relativism. If you think about it, materialism will end up at relativism because it states by definition that there, there is no such thing as external morality. That you are 100% a product of your circumstances and your environment. And that will mean that everything's relative. And as circumstances change, you need to change your, uh, your idea of what, even what it means to be human, which is what we're being told now you know, with transhumanism. That, that even the idea of what it means to be a man and a woman, what it means to be human even, it's all up for debate. And you end up in a position where then, you know, anything's allowed um, as long as power tells you it's okay to do. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. I think there needs to be some, you know, we need to have some guidance about life and what it means to be human. You just reminded me of this uh, comment. Uh, I had uh, someone wrote to me after I shared that clip of you that we started the episode, the, the first part of this episode with. Um, Bruce Party is a prof law professor uh, in Canada and Queens has been kind of watching this whole trucker throw situation. I was talking with him about that. But he reached out to me and he said, I think, I think that there's something missing from the comment. And of course, the comment I'm going to remind everyone was, when there's no such thing as truth, you can't define reality. And when you can't define reality, the only thing that matters is power. So his comment, it was, it's not just a battle over whether truth is relative or absolute. It's about something even more fundamental, if one can believe there is such a thing. He says, for me, it's about their rejection of consistency. Yeah. Right? They mean there's no truth except ours. Yeah, yeah. I, th I thought that was really interesting. That is, and, and it's why if we yeah. insert the word pursuit of truth, we arrive at that, at that. If we're pursuing truth, we will be seeking that consistency to arrive at truth, you know? And if you're not even bothering to pursue it, that's where you end up in that situation where it doesn't matter what, you know, this is what I say is what's gonna happen, it's what's gonna go, and I have the power to enforce what I say, and you're just gonna do it. And we heard that during the COVID mandate period. Like we ended up in a position, this is how it's gonna be, and you're gonna do it, or I'll lock you in your home. Scary. 
No one was interested in the, whether that was science was backing on. Nope, that's what we're telling you you're gonna do. Any final thought? I think uh, it's been a great conversation. It's lovely to meet you and I really encourage what you're doing and it's, it's, a, it's, a, pleasure, um, it's a pleasure to have this in-depth conversation with you. I encourage people to explore to, to explore this idea that actually, you know, we can aspire to something higher than ourselves. And, and, that, and that idea that actually a connection among each other um, that, that, that binds us, that is greater than simply, you know, our material day-to-day -day transactional pursuits, to have that human bond and understand deeply on, a, on an intimate level the value of being human um, and the value of community and of, of, of appreciating our human relations and community around us is where our strength will lie. I encourage people uh, to seek that in community and in relations and not to seek it in the machine, which is the system or the Leviathan. It will not give you that intimacy. It will invariably and inevitably betray you because it doesn't exist to solve your problems. It exists to deliver its objectives. It's a necessity. We have to have it. You know, Let's have a small version of it, a, a, a toothless version of it. But the size of it at the moment and it's, and it's kind of uh, 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 goal-oriented um, organizational setup won't give you that intimacy that we're looking for. And I believe that people have sensed that that's been missing. It won't come from the state. It has to come from our relations with our loved ones, with our communities. And so I, I think that localism, grounded communities, connections with teachers who have um, an understanding of human nature and what it means to self-correct and have an aspiration to some higher purpose and, uh, and recognize that there is... Um, uh, there is something worth exploring as to why we're here. I think that is so important to, as, a, as a guarantee that we don't go that, down this path again. Well, Majid Nawaz, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Look, uh, uh, Jan, it's fantastic I'm here because in London, I don't know if you know, I, don't know, I, I, I subscribe to the Epoch Times. I get the physical newspaper delivered to me in London and I have the digital subscription. And what I like about you guys is this idea that you're trying to rediscover and bring back this idea of journalism for its sake as a profession, as a pursuit. Uh, and I encourage, and I will encourage people, the first thing you do when you walk into my living room, you see your newspaper there. So it's, it's, I'm delighted to be here with you and have the opportunity to see your offices. Um, and uh, as I say, when, when I set my own show up in the UK, um, which will be on the Odyssey platform, O-D-Y-S-E-E, -E, I'd love to have you on and, and comment as, you know, as somebody that's working in, on, on the Epoch Times, because I think you guys are are really attempting what I value, and that's the pursuit of truth in journalism. So thank you. Wonderful. Well, we'll have, and we'll have you on again as well. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jan. Thank you very much. We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American Thought Leaders. So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American Thought Leaders.